not what I was hoping to see. Everybody, could you hear Nick just now when he said hi? Dangerous Maybe's in the chat. Anne is in the chat. Nance is in the chat. I'm getting the HC going because I'm always sweating on these things. I don't want to make it a theme. You don't want to be the sweaty, the, known as the sweaty participant? So it could be like, you know, Zizek's, um, his ticks. I'll just be the guy who sweats. Oh, fuck. <laughs> and you're going to go bald at some point here, too. We know that. So... You're going to be nope. a sweaty, bald dude in your 40s. The, <laughs> the gold, hairline is receding. You're going to be the, the Hank from Breaking Bad of theory. <laughs> but Italian. All right. But Italian, yeah. Hanko. Welcome, everybody, to this live stream. This is a lecture that we're going to be doing today that I'm going to be giving and that Nick is going to be sort of interview hystericizing me on. Um, really, he's just here to make me feel not alone. Uh, the nice thing about lectures in real life is that you can look out and there's a bunch of people and you can kind of see if you're losing people or not. Um, online, it's nice to have somebody like there in the lecture as it goes. Um, and I got a comment recently from somebody saying, um, that they don't appreciate this layout that I have where, you know, I've got like the David's, uh, Michelangelo's David with time energy tattoo, like the, the trees with the cityscape and the, all of this stuff. They just didn't like it. They, they, they felt the need to tell me that they find it all distracting and that they think you should only see the speaker and you shouldn't see the other person who's in the conversation. And I'm here to tell that person, I don't care. Um, they can just deal with it because uh, I care about the face of the person who's involved. Uh, I want to see it and I want to see it uh, now and for always. And I, some other people might want to see it. But even even if it's like you find that distracting, like there's too much stuff on the screen. Um, I don't even know why. I don't even know why you're watching my stuff in the first place anyway. I always have too much distracting stuff. Come on. It's for, it's for ADHD people. This is... Uh, a channel for people who are hyper distracted, who are getting into books because they realize they can get more, uh, more out of texts than uh, podcasts, right? They got tired of hearing other people digest uh, uh, books and now they want to do it for themselves. The goal of this lecture is to help make accessible one of the most difficult books from the history of philosophy, Heidegger's Being in Time. The book that we're going to be drawing from is History of the Concept of Time, which is, yeah, it's a book, but technically it was a lecture course that he gave in 1925, two years before the publication of Being in Time. Now, I don't want to do too much more like recapitulation of what we did in the previous lecture. Nick and I already did one of these. Uh, what was that, like two or three weeks ago now? Yeah, three weeks. Yeah. What did we cover in that one? What did we cover in that one? The, I don't know if we really got to intentionality yet. No, not really. But just we laid some groundwork as to the difference between what, like, historicity. Well, no, we didn't really get into the concept of historicity yet, but the historical sciences natural sciences 
how they are united by this thematic of time, right. why time warrants our attention, philosophically speaking. And yeah, a little bit think, about that. I think yeah, what else? you've basically touched on everything, but the, the key word for me is crisis. There's a crisis in the sciences. Yeah. And, and because philosophy, since Kant had reduced itself to philosophy of science, what we have is a crisis of philosophy and science, right? So, because that makes sense. If philosophy had become mm-hmm. down, if philosophy became downstream from science, and then science is having crises, then obviously philosophy is in a crisis. And the people who were trying to do something about these crises were starting at the wrong point. Heidegger's saying, basically, they are downstream from the scientists trying to go, oh, okay, well, if the, if the scientists are trying to figure out what their basis is, what their starting point is, uh, well, then we just have to kind of watch them and help theorize what we see here in all of these niche branches and areas of all of the different particular sciences. And because of this division between human, social, historical sciences versus natural science, there the there is just a proliferation of of reformist activities within all of these branches. And Heidegger's saying, we don't need a reformist philosophy. We need a truly radical philosophy, one that's going to go back to the root before the split between the natural versus historical, social, human sciences. Okay, And, to, and how are we to do that? What is the proper point of departure? As you already said, Nick, it is the horizon of time as the thing that ties these both together. On the side of humans, we have biography, genealogy, heritage, history, right? On the side of the natural sciences, we have natural genesis, evolution, um, the, and the time of uh, the, the time, the kind of time that gets talked about in physics, and then also measured by clocks. Now, because the human social historical sciences had taken as their inspiration the successes of Newtonian physics and uh, modern philosophy, the tendency has been to think about time in this abstract uh, grid, sort of indefinite and arbitrary sort of grid that is mapped by calendars and uh, the linear progression of a sequence of nows. And this is problematic for a variety of reasons that won't really become apparent until a lot later. But this is also why I am most interested in um, Heidegger. Well, it's not the only reason, but it's a big reason because uh, what we need is an existential conception of time that is rigorously reworked to break past the overly theoretical uh, conception of time that we've all kind of inherited from the clock, from the the work week, and from, yeah, it's just modern time and thinking of ourselves as subjects who pass through or possess a series of nows that can be uh, spent in this sort of abstractly similar way. Like, basically... Kind of short circuit this process because we're not going to come back to this for a while. There's 
this sort of linear abstract kind of time where it's all just broken down into point time. It's just all reusable. It's all equal. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of like when you're when you're scheduling your work week or if you get to have any choice over your work week uh, or if you're having a conversation negotiating your work week with your boss, it's acted as if a day over here is the same as a day over there. When obviously that's not true because time only matters insofar as it is re related to events. And events are things that happen with other people. And so work can obviously interfere with that. You know, work can get in the way of attending a wedding. Work can get in the way of being there for a holiday. And it is yeah. this kind of getting everyone to show up for something depends on a sort of kind of ritualistic uh uh, mechanism like you have to you have to plan things out ahead of time and if you really want to make it a dependable uh, mainstay in your life world then you're gonna have to make that repeatable and that's so there's gonna be practices that make it repeatable that kind of institutionalize it as a gathering point that kind of gives people their connectedness and without that we all lose touch with one another and even ourselves and that is what happens in capitalist time Anything else you want to say about capitalist time before we kind of get into Well, I was just thinking about when we think about this category of the temporospatial, which I think anyone who's trying to move beyond clock time might settle on the temporospatial time space. I don't want to conflate two different ideas here, but as you know, time becomes, in some sense, subsumed under the category of space right and it's as if we can understand time in spatial terms and i feel like that kind of capitalist time you're talking about is is a time that is geometric and measurable and that by focusing on that kind of time yeah we lose sight of the time that uh is more chirotic kairos the time of meaning i don't know if that's what Heidegger is getting at yet because we take a detour in this chapter uh, away from time temporarily, but I know we're going to get there. Right. So that's thought. And actually, yeah. So we uh, really in two chapters, really, uh, if we had the time, um, we would be doing three separate lectures on three separate chapters, chapters one through three of history, of the concept of time in the future. I would like to come back and break this into those component lectures, but because we don't have the time, much less the energy, we are going to try to speed run three chapters. And I know that that's impossible. And Heidegger even says that it's not like, you can't take the results of phenomenological research and then regurgitate them in a summary form and then just what memorize and regurgitate these facts like that's not the point the point is to, to is to help the reader or the audience of the lecture get a sort of original grasp of the subject matter at hand by working through it in a pretty uh, disciplined rigorous way that requires a lot of preparation we can't do that so instead uh, we're not going to just summarize. We're going to kind of talk it out. The goal is to kind of not give you like this original brush with the material because that would actually require reading Husserl yourself, but instead so that we can understand why Heidegger thinks that Husserl, his mentor, is so important for having made discoveries that 
set him up to do the work that he's going to do in being in time. The reason we have to do this is because Nick and I are reading Being in Time this summer, as well as Nance and Anne, who are in the chat. Um, and we have a small research cohort involving a few other people as well who are going to be a part of this. And uh, the when I say research cohort, on the one side, it's just we're, we're, for anybody who's interested in theory and continental philosophy, you have to have a basis in being in time. So that's that's part of what's being researched is like, well, why do we need that basis? And, and what does this book really accomplish? And what is its impact? What is its influence? Um, what's problematic about that influence? Um, how has it been typically interpreted and understood? Those are a variety of things that we have to get into this summer, really starting on June 3rd. But for me, I'm trying to make the courses at Theory Underground not just something that you take with a cohort and then it's gone and then if you want to watch it after the fact, you watch these several hour long things where you weren't even present and there's you know discussion groups where you, you don't even know the people really and you're kind of just this bystander. We're trying to remove that element, move most of this stuff to the Theory Underground app, which is still in development. Um, and make it so that when you join the game late um, and there's people who've taken like all the courses ahead of you, um, if you binge those courses, uh, you, it's going to be a lot more fulfilling, right? Because right now, if you just watch, if you, if you try to binge any of the courses that have happened at Theory Underground, it's going to be pretty much just watching a bunch of videos. We're, we're, we're going to try to do something to set up incentive accountability and assessment structures so that people can measure their progress and get credit, you know, street credit, not certificates, but, you know, street cred for actually having accomplished it. So that if somebody does a course and then you get like the achievement or the badge on your Theory Underground account, then when you're in forums and stuff, people see, oh, shit, yeah, you did Being in Time. Oh, you did Das Kapital. Oh, you did Totality Infinity. Oh, you've done all of Lacan's seminars. Amazing. So like, it, it, uh, people will then have an idea of who they're talking to. And that's important because anybody who's read any of these profoundly difficult, uh, profound and difficult works wants to be able to have conversations with other people about them to kind of help rework their understanding over time. And uh, if you're talking to somebody and you don't know what they've read, you, then you don't know what their commitments are as far as like, are they are they even interested in this stuff? Like how much work have they actually put into it? Um, and so, you know, we're not there yet with all the courses, but this one is the first major course that I aim to make available on demand that I hope people will take and binge on their own or do with future cohorts um, beginning at the end of October. So this course that we're doing over the summer is one that I am going to make available on demand beginning at the end of October. And then people who weren't here for it um, are going to be able to get up to speed anyway. And so the research cohort, not only are we trying to understand being in time for our own selves, but we're also trying to develop um, what are the most crucial questions, concepts, and problems of the chapters of being in time and ways of making it so that other people can 
dive into this text on their own, but develop their understanding in dialogue with us. So with all of that said, chapters one and two are what we're going to be mostly focusing on, and I'll kind of give you the spoiler of chapter three at the end of this. And the reason we have to put chapters one through three here now um, into video form for you all is because anybody who's joining us to begin reading Being in Time uh, this summer, you're going to appreciate this as the sort of missing introduction to being in time, right? And so that's something that I talked about a little bit yesterday in my exegetical reading of sections from chapter two of History of the Concept of Time. Uh, I basically published a blog post yesterday called The Missing Introduction to Being in Time, in which I say that the history of the concept of time, the introduction plus chapters one through three, is really what you need to have a sense for what does Heidegger think phenomenology is? What does he think its value is? What did it do that sets him up to be able to do what he needs to do? How does he defend Husserl from Husserl's critics? And then how does he himself critique Husserlian <clears throat> phenomenology? Right, And so that's not something that you really get from divisions or from parts one and two of the introduction to being in time. The, what you get from the introduction to being in time is more like him saying, all right, so this is, this is, this is my project. This is what I want you to take away from this. This is how I want you to read my phenomenological research in being in time. But he's writing that after the fact. And so this text gives us a lot more of like the what is he thinking before he undertakes that research. So chapter one is what we're going to kind of go through pretty quickly here. I just want to talk about his main focus is how everything is Cartesian. So whether it's the idealists, the positivists, um, modern psychology of his time, um, it's all Cartesian in a sense. He talks about how Augusta Comte and John Stuart Mill are like the main two uh, positivists. He talks about, uh, and, and you know, they try to develop a sort of positivistic sociology that will try to model itself after the natural sciences, which is to say, what is positivism? In short, it's basically just the sense of um, you, you're only going off of empirical facts and uh, what what can be confirmed through uh, trial and error, right? Which is obviously a valid uh, way of uh, getting evidence if we're dealing with uh, natural objects. But there's different kinds of evidence for different kinds of regions of being, something we'll get into later here. And positivism isn't able to account for most human things, right? So something that, Nick, I think you're probably quite familiar with this. We've talked about it more than a few times, um, especially with Mikey, uh, is the idea that <clears throat> negativity, negativity has a determinate presence, impact, and sway over what we can see and what we experience, right? And, the, you know, just like a good ex example of that is... If, you can't just you can't know about a person by just going off of the empirical facts of their body in space and time in front of you if you were analyzing them. Uh, you know you, you could maybe figure out that they're in a bad mood, 
because of their, you know, the way that their brain is and the, the, the way that their heart pressure is. But that bad mood, you, you can't trace that back to uh, its source if the source is something that's not present, right? That thing that's not present might be that they, they had a date and somebody just canceled on the date. Or it might be that they're, one of their loved ones is no longer in this world, right? These are absences. These are forms of negation. Other forms of negation involve kinds of contradiction that are also determinant on the things that we take for granted that we can see and analyze. What's up, Tony? It's good to see you. Welcome to the lecture. So positivism is a useful tool of analysis in certain situations, but taken as the measure of success for all forms of analysis? No, because it's not going to help us understand humans in the more intimate and relevant ways. Neo-Kantianism is something he talks about as the response to the failures of the great idealist systems because of German idealism uh, coming into crisis people were going back to Kant and there were all kinds of neo-Kantianism proliferating and Heidegger has a problem with this he says that this is one of the ways that uh, philosophy had become traditionalistic instead of people going oh so you know, the, the, the project of German idealism is coming to serious crisis. Um, let's get back to the matters themselves. Instead of doing that, people say, let's go back to Kant, right? And, and Heidegger, as well as Husserl, they go, well, why are we going back to Kant? Why aren't we just bringing it back to the level of what can be deduced from reality itself, from uh, experience itself, from concrete experience? So neo-Kantianism, positivism, as well as psychology, understood as the science of consciousness, are all Cartesian, meaning they come from Descartes, from his rigid sort of uh, separation of reg cogitans from res extensa, right? So there's the world of extended uh, – there's the world of space of extended objects, uh, and that would be res extensa, and then there's the 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 stuff of mind, res cogitans. This separation of these two things comes out of a variety of very particular uh, sort of thought experiments and deductions and hypotheses that Descartes is rolling out in a very specific line of research with its own definitive ends. And I think Heidegger respects that project, but not so much the fact that that division, that dualism, had been sort of uncritically inherited um, after Descartes. So all of these, you know, positivism, psychology as conscious, science of consciousness, Augusta Comte and John Stuart Mill, their positivism, have a focus on consciousness or, it, or the objects of consciousness. So either mind or matter. And epistemology becomes the predominant form of philosophy because the separation between mind and ma matter and the, and the sort of skepticism <clears throat> and, and uh, question marks put over this separation um, bring, to, bring us to the, the, the – makes us think that the most important question is how do we know? 
how do we know uh, that the things appearing to consciousness are real? Um, how do we know that we're real, um, etc.? So I think that's basically the sort of my my speed run of of trying to say this is why he's focusing on all of these thinkers and schools of thought, and uh, it's really it comes down to this division between consciousness and its objects or how we know them. But this, though it's all very interesting and worthwhile, um, is not fundamental philosophy for Heidegger or Husserl, and we'll get to why in a little bit. So we'll. Wilhelm Dilthe comes along and attempts to found human sciences on their own. But Heidegger doesn't think that he was radical enough. So, of course, it makes sense to want to found the human sciences on their own in the same way that Brentano is going to want to found psychology on psychological experience itself, not just transposing concepts from the natural sciences into the region of the psyche, right? Um, in the same way, Dilthe is saying, why are we using the tools and measures of success from the natural sciences here in the human sciences? Shouldn't the human sciences have their own foundation in history, right? And so that's what he's trying to do. Um, and Heidegger takes great inspiration from Dilthe, but he still maintains this distinction between natural versus human sciences, right? And so that's what we talked about in the previous lecture was this distinction between those two things. And we already got into why Heidegger does not think that's a good idea. If we want to return philosophy to its proper place, we can't just uh, stay within this divide. We actually have to go back to before the divide. So th the two problems with Dilthe, focus on consciousness and life, uh, the, the concept of life being too broad, Heidegger's seeing this, this focus on consciousness and this overly broad conception of life um, as presuming too much and not taking into account um, the advances made in phenomenological research by Husserl. Now, the other problem is that Dilthe's followers were extremely traditionalistic, meaning that in the same way that the Neo-Kantians want to base everything within a sort of resuscitated or, or reformed Kantian project, Dilthe's followers uh, were actually bringing Dilthe, after he had died, sort of back into a Neo-Kantian paradigm, which was something that Dilthe had halfway broken out of, but then here he was getting pulled back into it. And Heidegger saying he never went far enough to really get out of it, to get out of all of this epistemological baggage that he had presupposed and brought into his own research. But uh, his, he was on his way to getting out of it, and uh, Dilthe's followers brought him back fully within the Neo-Kantian framework, meaning they had kind of domesticated him in a way that was like the opposite of where he was really going with all of its possibilities. Fun fact about Dilthe, I saw his portrait at the Humboldt University um, sort of alumni section where they have famous alumni and there's just all these portraits around. W.E.B. Du Bois was there as well as Wilhelm Delthi. <coughs> cool facts, huh, Nick? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we... 
you just kind of have to take us at our word. We're, tr- we're, we're trying to tell you that, that this is important or whatever, but we haven't read Dilthi. Um, Heidegger and Husserl had seriously read Dilthi, and he was influential on them. And so you kind of just have to take that and go, okay, cool, good to know. But how does that come into play with the project of being in time? We'll kind of get into it. So from, positive psych- from positivist psychology to Brentano, okay? Brentano comes in to critique this idea of inwardness versus outwardness, right? So the, the natural sciences deal with all of the stuff that's out there, and psychology deals with consciousness, which is the stuff that's in here. Brentano's like, I don't think so. And he makes a strenuous effort to found psychology on experiences of the psyche to develop a sort of structures, uh, to deduce structures of the mind uh, from the things themselves, from the mind itself. Did I just lose internet? Are we still here? I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. It said, I, I'm getting a message on my browser saying that I've lost internet for a second, but okay. Mm. So, so I haven't read Brentano more than a few pages, honestly, and... I, you know, I want to know how much of an impact he actually had on Husserl, how much Husserl really supersedes him. I want to know the same questions, uh, the answers to the questions like this regarding the relationship between Husserl and Heidegger as well. Um, but for now, like I said, we're really just sticking to Heidegger's sort of summary of the field, which is just to say Brentano is kind of the, the inspiration to what comes from uh, what everything that comes about after him, uh, but from Heidegger's standpoint, he's still too Cartesian, and he brings something more with his focus on intentionality and the things themselves. I don't know what I meant by that, but it doesn't matter. Let's keep going. So, with Brentano, the idea of intentionality is resuscitated. The idea of intentionality was already there in. Uh, in Greece, in ancient Athens. Uh, so it's there with classical philosophy. And then it's even there with some of the uh, scholastic philosophers or the, the medieval philosophers. But um, Heidegger says, never in a, rigu- a rigorously formulated way, right? But with Descartes and after Descartes, modern philosophy had completely lost um, touch with intentionality. And so it was Brentano who brought intentionality back into play. So I'm going to be totally brutal here and just skip over so much really important stuff from chapters one and two and just kind of give you the why it matters and say, if you want to go deeper, obviously you should read it for yourself. Also, uh, one other thing you can do besides reading it for yourself is watch me interviewing Brian Becker because I brought him on during the two-day marathon stream, and I have since reposted that interview to the Theory Underground channel. And I know that Nick has watched a lot of Brian Becker in preparation for, for sure. taking on Being in Time. Yeah. Shout out, to, shout out to Brian Becker, one of the best theory channels on YouTube. Absolutely. Singularity as sublimity. Singularity as sublimity. When I tried to say it yesterday, I said singularity as sublation. And, I, and then I was like, that's not it. Yeah. That's when he takes on Hegel. Maybe he'll call that series. 
singularity of sublation. Good idea. So intentionality, the, the cliff notes of it, it's basically just the fact that there is no pure consciousness and there's no pure objects. Like obviously we can talk about pure consciousness and pure objects, but it, but we're doing a sort of abstraction and a, a sort of thought experiment. And when we take categories such as consciousness or objects considered outside of the mind, when we take them for granted as separate, there is an idealization occurring, right? So philosophy had done this from Descartes through Kant to talk about the faculty of judgment or just to talk about judgment as something wholly belonging to consciousness, wholly belonging to mind, to talk about will as its own faculty or its own aspect of the mind. Well, Israel's looking around going, wait a minute. And I think phenomenologically, trying to do, con- trying to continue this project started by Brentano, there is no pure consciousness and there are no pure objects. Shit, that poses a serious problem for modern philosophy in general, right? Even when they don't think that they're being platonic, they're basically being platonic. They're taking these these categories as self-standing and removed from the actual experience of humans perceiving things, right? So to break down this division between consciousness and its objects uh, is what intentionality does. Brian Becker called that the glue between inside and outside. I would also say that it's a bridge between inside and outside that is more we can be more sure of the bridge between inside and outside than we can be of inside and outside. I mean, like that's a, that's a profound statement, right? To say that we know that there's a bridge between an inside and outside is more transparently true and easier to confirm than the pure idea of outside and inside and inside in traditional philosophy is called imminence whereas the stuff out there is called transcendence right meaning that it it transcends mere mind mere consciousness and it's out there on its own but these are ideas that are the products of abstraction and idealization that have not really dwelt with some of the fundamental facts revealed to us in experience right i have some i have some thoughts here yeah, do. If I could just break in. Um, I'm thinking of two things. One, when you mentioned imminence and transcendence and how this bridge is neither. I think it seems like Heidegger is the first to introduce this concept of the transcendentally imminent or imminently transcendental in a sense. And it's one that philosophers will be continuing to grapple with after heidegger Mm -hmm. and it seems like i don't know if that might answer your question as to how he's trying to surpass a kantian approach to the question of the transcendental and that maybe phenomenology is just such a philosophical science which will help us to almost collapse that distinction because we're going to get into it in a little bit but his concept of the phenomenon is 
where when applied to logos, we get a, a blurring of the distinction between imminence and transcendence. And one other thing I wanted to say is that just to take a kind of Lacanian approach to this question of what is the glue between the inside and outside, I think it's interesting that he talks about how we have empty intending, um, different forms of intuition, and then the, then the you know bodily presence of something. Right. Well, I think for Freud, it's like the body would actually be the, the soma would actually be this intersection between inside and and outside. But it is a it's an uncertain bridge for sure. Mm. The, the thing that I hope that you'll be able to help us kind of uh, tie back in here uh, towards the later, maybe when it's most relevant, you'll see for yourself when that is, uh, is phenomenon, the sense that it's being used and how it, in a way, breaks this. Because that's uh, something that I didn't get to dwell on as much as I would have liked. And so um, I don't have a, I, I'll need your help on that section. So, sure. So intentionality is the glue, it's the bridge, um, it's something that is inarguable. I mean, he destroys Rickert uh, in one section, who Rickert's this, uh, he's one of the traditionalistic neo-Kantian uh, disciples of Dilthey, who is kind of continuing that project, but he critiques phenomenology and Husserl for... Uh, well, he's trying to show its limits, and in doing so, he actually presupposes uh, intentionality, but he just uh, – he's using he, – basically, Heidegger shows how Rickert brings a bunch of um, dogmatic, uh, empirical – or sorry, imp- imp- dogmatic epistemological presuppositions from modern philosophy into his work, and so he's not actually able to – understand what's going on okay if you want to know what why I, I read through that section and I talk about it in the exegetical reading from yesterday but it's kind of neither here nor there the point is that intentionality it's about as much it, I'm trying to figure out a way to say it I can be more sure of intentionality than I can be of anything in this room or anything in my mind right what does that mean? Intentionality, intentional experience is the fact that consciousness is always consciousness of something and that any thing that consciousness is thinking about, looking at, focusing on, whatever, is, be, is an object of a directedness. You're taking up a direction towards that thing, which means that you have a standpoint, right? So... This means that we're always already taking up a, de- a, de- a definite standpoint in the world towards things, right? So Descartes, in his attempt to be radically skeptical and build his philosophy off of a firm basis, is skeptical about this, skeptical of that, skeptical of – he puts uh, question marks over everything in reality and then finally comes down to the one thing he could be most sure of is that he is – Thinking, right? The mere, the mere fact of doubting means that he is thinking. I think, therefore, I am. Boom! It's the basis of his philosophy, but it's a basis to his philosophy that puts priority on mind over matter, right? So, this uh, 
the point with intentionality being something that we can be more sure of than uh, than Descartes being sure about being a thinking being. The point of that is because it reestablishes the bridge between subject and object that Descartes had kind of destroyed. And I really, Descartes didn't destroy it, but um, everyone after him in an attempt to be really good philosophers uh, takes that skepticism thing as far as they possibly can to where Hume's like, well, can I even, just because I doubt and think doesn't mean that I know that there's an I. In fact, the I might just be an aggregate of sense uh, represent you know re- representations that have their basis in sense fragmented uh, sense experiences, right? And so you have a variety of different ways of inheriting the Cartesian project. Point being, we can be more sure that consciousness is always consciousness of things than the idea of a mere or or pure consciousness removed from the world. So then, the other two principles here outside of the breakdown of consciousness from objects no purely objective ordering principle can be seen experienced um, in any way shape or form except as a thought as a thought experiment right it's like uh, we have like this thought experiment of the objective god's eye view of things even then you don't really have a conception of it you're just kind of positing it right it's something that we appeal to because it makes us feel powerful. You know, it's something that we appeal to in arguments. Oh, well, this is the objective situation. Meaning, removing all subjects from the situation, this remains. Remo- removing all subjective interpretation, this remains. But intentionality shows us that there is no purely objective ordering principle. That, And, and what do I mean by ordering principle? It's There's facts. And those get put into order. And then uh, the way that we order facts uh, helps us with arguments, helps us come up with theories. Theories, in a sense, give us a way of ordering a bunch of facts. But there's no purely objective ordering principle out there, outside of us. We always bring into analysis our standpoint our motives. And of course, the goal of science is to remove that to the best of its degree. But what is the impulse to remove that? And uh, what are the problems that come from that? One of the problems that comes from that is basic basic nihilism, right? This idea that there's a whole world out there, it doesn't depend on us. Yet at the same time, our idea of a world out there, as well as all of the things that we experience or that we, we, we are able to lay out as out there, have only been laid out by people who have a vested interest in laying them out in the first place, right? So there's an inherent uh, bias to trying to lay things out and say that, they, oh, this is just the objective order in which they, they are presented without us involved. Well, we're, we're the ones who put them there, right? We're the ones who put them there and then we're trying to conclude that, oh, well, this doesn't require us. Yeah, but we, we laid them out in a way that makes us come to that conclusion, right? So this idea of a, of no pure objective ordering principle, when you read chapter one of Being in Time, the last or the second to last paragraph will actually bring you back to this point. 
the the realization because he he will bring it in. He'll say he'll say if there is um, a genuine ordering principle, like a like a real ordering principle, it's going to come from the things themselves, not from us imposing it on these things. So we have to look at the things and see if there's a uh, an ordering principle in these things. But it's never going to come from these things objectively, separate from ourselves, it's always going to be, it's always going to come out of our intentional experience with these things, right? So this is something that gets picked up and taken in a million directions by every continental philosopher to come after Heidegger. Um, I think that the way that it probably is most relevant for Lacanians, um, because we're both very influenced by Lacan, is the idea of gaze. And we're not really get into it right now, but just the point is, is like, you don't just see things. Like there's no neutral seeing, right? Things are always disclosed to us in a way that tells us something about ourselves. Okay, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, that's, that's like, like thinking about a uh, way that this from Husserl through Heidegger into Lacan is so influential on the development of continental philosophy is something that I want to be doing over the next several years, really. But, um, yeah, I think, uh, what you said that also resonated with me as something of a Lacanian, uh, is this idea of the localization of consciousness as a point of departure for the kind of uniqueness of the subject in question in analysis, even though it's going to go in a very different direction because Lacan would probably fundamentally disagree with Heidegger's notion of the subject or maybe his um, subtraction of the subject right. from the scene. But the idea that, yes, consciousness is localized and that it's sort of the needle eye from which it emanates is this unique singular subject right yeah i think so yeah and that's in the interview with brian becker this is really the theme of the entire lecture is you know what is how how did brentano influence Husserl, but also freud and then heidegger and lacan and and like how how does intentionality therefore becomes like fundamental to, to all of these different projects that's a lot of the questions that I'm asking in that interview. So make sure to check that out. But um, lastly, uh, because of all of the facts just laid out, any truly empirical psychology must base itself in the fact of intentionality, right? So empirical is here in quotes because it's not being used in the normal sense of, of the project of empiricism, but it's meaning based off of like experience we're not just uh this is not pure speculation right we're basing this off of uh the matters themselves now i'm not gonna get too much into it but basically there's three categories of intentionality there are there's representation judgment and interest right representation meaning any reflection on objects that could be in your imagination, that could be using language as signifiers that they that, that also represent reality to us. Like representation is always rep representation of something, right? So that that's the intentionality move. Like representation, 
there's no such thing as pure representation. There's always representation of something. Um, judgment is same thing. Whether something is true or false, it's always judgment of something. There's no pure judgment. Same thing with interest. There's no such thing as pure love, emotion, valuing, or value. There's always love of, emotion of or about, valuing of or about, etc., etc. And then the influence, I kind of just touched on this, the impact and influence of Brentano is on William James, Henri Bergson, Sigmund Freud, Wilhelm Delthi, and for our purposes, Edmund Husserl. So, sorry I'm not here. I'm a turd. Got to float somewhere else for the time being. I'm a Dasein and later and catch up. Thanks. For, uh, Adam, thanks for stopping by and saying so. It's good to see you. And when you catch up, let me know in the comment section. It's always good to know who was watching after the fact. So, Edmund Husserl was a mathematician turned philosopher of psychology. Um, I mean, really, I, he's, a, he's a philosopher of psychology about numbers, about logic, uh, trying to found these things, uh, trying, to found, trying to figure out like the priority of logic, math, and psyche, right? Math and logic are interesting because they, they give us rules, they give us ideal objects, and these are ideal objects meaning that like they are... They're, they're pure, perfect objects of consciousness, right? Um, what is their relation to nature? What is th These are the kinds of questions that Husserl is dealing with, but he can't even really get into the project that he wants to undertake in founding these things and their proper priority and relations um, without setting up a sort of basis for the most rigorous philosophical undertaking that's ever uh, – that, that any philosopher has ever uh, done. So he's a methodological inspiration and a genius for Heidegger. But Heidegger says his problems are always arid. They're, they're focused on traditionalist philosopher kind of words like object, concept, truth, proposition. I, I have the word fact here, but I meant fact. fact. He kind of he trimmed the fat from other from metaphysics in a sense, right? He trims a lot of fat. Yeah, I mean, and is he doing that surgically, or is it because he's doing so many exercises that he's just giving philosophy its proper workout? I don't know. Looks nice and lean yeah. in that picture. The unlike his books, which are not lean. <laughs> yeah. So Dilthey reworks his own project in light of Husserl's work. And I like how Heidegger actually points out that most philosophers by the age of 65, they're so set in their ways, they're not going to undertake some grand reworking of their project. But Dilthey, to his credit, actually does exactly that. He reworks his entire project in lieu of Husserl's work – or sorry, in the aftermath of reading Husserl's work. And so uh, Edmund Husserl – Really big influence here on um, Dilthey as well as Heidegger. And so Heidegger, one of the things that's special about Heidegger is that he is trying to build a system. But he's also like a sort of anti-systematic thinker, meaning that he's got a problem with the systems 
of the tradition of philosophy, but he still wants to take the insights, like the crucial insights from Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and Schleiermacher and Husserl and Dilthe and all of these other people. He wants to take all of their crucial post-Kantian insights and rework them into an integrated theory that has its basis on the things themselves. And for Husserl, the most fundamental basis that we can uh, build a, a philosophy off of is intentionality. The fact that we are always situated in a standpoint and that anything that we can talk about is something that cannot be talked about in its pure form without being abstracted out of our context, out of our world. So if we get back to experience itself, we learn that this division and this rigid, this rigid division between these ideal objects and, and consciousness, that's not there. That's not real. Heidegger is going to think, or he's going to lay out a program in Being in Time, though, for why intentionality, as it's been conceived by Husserl, is too narrow and still loses context with the world. So I know I said this at the beginning that summaries won't do, um, but I actually have a few quotes that I want to have read through this lecture because it's important to hear from the author. It's important to hear that voice come through. And it does come through even though it's translated into English. The voice comes through nonetheless. But um, Nick, will you do us the honors of reading this quote? Sure. Uh, summaries won't do. Phenomenology proceeds in a thoroughgoing investigative fashion. It calls for a step-by-step expressly intuitive envisaging of the matters at issue and a verifying demonstration of them. Accordingly, one cannot, without subverting the entire sense of the investigations, simply pull out results and integrate them into a system. Rather, the whole thrust of the work serves to implicate the reader into pressing further and working through the matters under investigation. It is of the essence of phenomenological investigations that they cannot be reviewed summarily, but must in each case be rehearsed and repeated anew. Any further synopsis which merely summarizes the contents of this work would thus be, phenomenologically speaking, a misunderstanding. Exactly. And I think at this point, we've not really been summarizing much except that I did kind of give you some of the takeaways of intentionality. But that's not the same thing as working through intentional experience um, with Husserl or Heidegger. So it really is something that you're going to have to do on your own. Um, but it's, it's important for the reasons we've already given. And, uh, you know, the reason I wanted this quote here is just as a strong reminder to take it all with a grain of salt. You really do have to do the work yourself. Um, the summaries really won't do. Now, the three major discoveries of phenomenology which is what he gets into in chapter two of History of the Concept of Time, are intentionality, categorical intuition, and the original sense of the a priori. There's no way that we can actually do justice to this, okay? 
Heidegger was already saying, I can't do justice to this, but I'm still going to give you this. And now here I'm doing the exact same thing. All right. But intentionality, we've already kind of hit this over the head too many times. So I am beating a dead horse here. It goes, there's no evidence of pure objects, pure consciousness, dualism, etc. This means empiricism, positivism, and idealism all leap into extreme abstractions. The fundamental structure of what has been understood as consciousness is a being directed towards as such, which destroys Cartesianism, which would have, you know, you can just, you can kind of stay in airy fairy speculative land and everything's purely rationalistic in the mind, losing touch with the world. Categorical intuition, on the other hand, is a little bit more complicated. Um, and I really don't know how to unpack it, except to say that according to Heidegger, one of the fundamental discoveries of phenomenology is that we, though we don't have access to the things themselves in the Kantian sense, we can, through paying attention to experience itself, deduce categories that aren't the product of speculation or, or just you know logical deductions uh, removed from reality, but are actually found in the things themselves. So we can find categories in the things themselves. Um, this is important because philosophy, especially for Husserl and Heidegger, means trying to develop a conception of the world and of ourselves and of the relation between these things that is based in uh, experience and that deduces from that experience general structures of self and world. Right, so we want to we want to have a, a sense of these general structures. Um, so it's like to be able to talk about humanity, right? Well, that's a big that's a big blanket we just threw out there with this word humanity, right? We're not just talking about me or you. We're talking about all people that have been or ever will be. How can you use a word like humanity when you don't know all humans, right? Well, if you're careful enough. You pay close enough attention to experience itself and you are in, a, in dialogue with others, then you might be able to tease out some general structures of what it means to be human, right? This helps us live the exam in life. This helps us um, in other ways. It definitely helps us debunk stupid bullshit, right? Like uh, sort of derivative, watered down, um, dogmatic abstractions and uh, presuppositions that we inherit as a product of just being in a culture. Um, Heidegger's going to say, well, there's nothing wrong with being in a culture and having uh, inculcated a lot of ideas from it, but you want to revisit those in a rigorous manner. Okay? Categorical intuition as a thing, the fact that it exists, that it is possible, um, sets the basis for getting underway with philosophy again, right? Not in a neo-Kantian way, but in a post-Kantian way. The word intuition, it's important to unpack here. It's not the same thing as how you feel about things, is it, Nick? No, no, it's not how you feel about things, I think. And I, I don't remember all of the 
different subcategories here, but I guess it's sort of degrees or gradations of the fulfillment mm. of um, these structures. When you say it's like that at each level, there's a different involvement of the the one perceiving and that the the perceivedness involved in that moment has a general kind of structure to it. Um, but I, I guess it, it, it's not, but it's not intentionality in that way. Aren't we in a way we, our, our, it's like our vehicle here is intentionality, but we're also trying to move beyond intentionality. Wouldn't you say, or am I a, totally off base here yeah yeah no you're talking so for instance self-givenness bodily givenness and empty intending are all three different ways intentionality um works and then there's other sort of natural uh categories or splits within those things that are worked through by Husserl and Heidegger but the the, the point – so intuition is just like seeing things in a very broad sense. Um, it's not – we don't mean this in the American colloquial way, the American standard English way, which is just like how you feel about things. The, the intuition in philosophy for thousands of years just meant um, seeing things, right? Um, so the point is, is that we can, by looking at things, uh, deduce categories, Right. And that these can help us come up with like fundamental structures of what it is to be human or how we are human. So I couldn't help but think, though, like also, I mean, intuition in the Kantian sense. Uh, obviously, it's like when we think about categories, intuition, the a priori, Kant is immediately evoked here. Yes. And yeah, you're right. Like for him, intuition is separate from understanding. And there are many versions of this duality, which is, like you were saying, maybe the Cartesian inheritance. But it seems like for Heidegger, intuition is much more heterogeneous when it comes to where understanding is, where perception is. We're not dealing with a pure perception or perceivedness these categories are already baked into what we're seeing but not in the way that Kant is going to have his categories sort of sail the material of of uh re of a reality in a sense right. or, or or what's given to what's sensorily given in its pure form Right. Now, neither of us are, and especially me, man, I'm, I'm very rusty on my Kant, and it's actually posing a problem going back through a lot of these pre-being-in-time lectures because there's a lot of arguing with Kant, and I'm just like, okay, I really need to just go back to critique of pure reason and really the whole project, reread all of Kant. But before I can do that, this is what we're doing. And uh, it's okay to not have a it's okay to jump into to a, to a philosopher who's talking about a different philosopher who comes before him. Um, it's okay to do that. Uh, you always kind of do that with philosophy. And even if you did read everything linearly, you got to read things multiple times to really get a sense for it. Um, but, f but from where we're standing, um, I think that what you just said is basically perfect. I would just say, so there's a lot of different categories of the mind. There's like eight or 11 or something, maybe 12. Is it like eight or 12? 
But, the, you know, Kant derives all of these categories of the mind, understanding being one of them, intuition being one of them, right? Um, and, yeah, they're, they're talked about as though, like, they are, like, these distinct self-standing faculties of the mind. Um, but the point of what we get through intentionality and understanding this phenomenologically is that the categories aren't shouldn't just be products of the mind or self-standing things in the mind but are the any categories we're using to think should be derived from the things themselves and we only have access to the things through seeing them right and so we need a more rigorous conception of intuition and how through it we are able to derive categories and these are not going to exactly as you said they're not going to be they're not going to be like removed there's no there's no such thing as understanding outside of understanding things right um and i you, this kind of just breaks apart this rigid uh division between the things themselves and um our mind or experience right which is the you know he has Kant has this distinction between the noumenal being the things themselves versus the phenomenal meaning the stuff of mind and its experiences this is intentionality basically just kind of comes in and says no and, and just dismantles this now, I can't really get into this section. I think this section is amazing, and he uses a bunch of examples. You know, recourse is made to a bridge in town as well as his writing desk back at his house. He talks about how there's no evidence that there are representations of the bridge when you're talking about the bridge. Uh, you know, if you're envisaging in your mind the bridge and it's a bridge that you pass over every day on your way to work you're not representing it in this sense of like oh you're just dealing with a representation no you're actually thinking about the actual bridge right it's not just a representation in this sense that it's just totally removed from the thing itself no it's you're you're actually thinking about the thing itself right it's not just a representation in this sort of removed sense and so he talks about the self-givenness of the bridge, uh, which is like the bridge as a really existing thing. It has its own givenness and we can experience that to some degree, even just remembering it, right? You and I, if we've both passed over this bridge, we can sit here and talk about it. And, uh, and, and we're not just speculating. This isn't just something that we're doing in this purely mental thing. No, we're actually... Uh, drawing from real experience of the bridge, and then obviously that gets filled out in a very, um, in a in a much more lucid way when you're there, when there's actual bodily givenness of the bridge, and these are much more robust forms of intentionality than empty intending. Empty intending is like so someone says the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's like well you've seen pictures of this bridge, you've 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 but you've not actually been there and so you don't actually know too much about it. You're just like, oh, okay. Actually, I, this is a bad example because like basically everybody has this image of the Golden Gate Bridge in their mind. But if I just said, oh, there's a bridge across town and you've never seen this bridge, you know nothing about this. You're As soon as I say there is this bridge across town, you are now emptily intending the bridge. You have consciousness 
of the bridge, but you have no fucking clue what's actually there, right? This is like a placeholder. This is like a black box. This is like, it's, it's, just, it's just a word to you. But it's something that you can start to think about. Okay, it's a bridge. That means that it's probably going over a river or over a street. Like it's 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 taking people over something. It probably, you know, he goes he goes into detail. He t- you know it probably has it's probably made of stone uh, because at Freiburg in the t- at the time that he was giving this lecture, I'm guessing most of the bridges were built out of stone. So it's just like even though you're just empty intending. You can still probably hypothesize um, some general characteristics based off of the thing, based off of what you've heard about it, uh, based off of what the word means in a dictionary, etc. And then uh, through reading books or through going and actually checking it out for yourself, you're able to confirm how much of that was true and then fill out more of the details. And so he gets into intentional presuming and fulfillment, right? We, we, when you have this this empty intending notion of the bridge, you start to presume things about it. And then you actually go and you check it out for yourself. Now there is this fulfillment, which I'd say is like kind of like confirmation of the various things about that, right? This is – so this is true of a bridge, but this is also true of anything and everything. All we have in terms of intentionality are going to be – uh, forms of empty intending, the self-givenness of the thing, or its bodily givenness. And so for concepts that aren't actually based in reality in a way where we're able to have the experience, the, the, the bodily givenness of the thing, it disclosing itself to us in its facticity, um, we're kind of in the dark, right? Like we don't want to get too far removed from experience because philosophers can tend to just build castles in the sky, in the clouds, right? Mathematics and logic are all based in uh, systems that come down to basic experiences um, and fundamental axioms or operating assumptions that have to be made so as to get the system going, right? There are techniques in mathematics and logic for the disclosure of these things giving themselves to us, right? For, to, to the apprehending consciousness, right? Um, but in any other realm, in any other sphere of human life, uh, there will be other ways that the thing itself can give itself to us or that it makes itself known, right? By developing a rigorous conception of categorical intuition and how intentionality works, we're going to be able to refound the sciences, refound philosophy, and come to uh, ideal structures that can be deduced from actual experience, right? The interesting thing that he doesn't get too much in depth into in this chapter is he talks about how there's a regionality of evidence, right? Evidence is defined as identifying fulfillment, 
right? So you going back to the example of the bridge, you know, so someone tells you that there's a bridge, you emptily intend about the bridge, then you go and you actually see that it's really there. And now your conception of it meets the thing itself, can be corrected there. And there's an identifying fulfillment, meaning the self-sameness of the thing stands out, right? And your concept is now in accord with the thing, meaning that there's a coincidence between your notion and the thing itself, right? Well, different kinds of identifying fulfillment are going to exist in different regions, right? Whether, they're, whether we're dealing with math or various kinds of science or whatever, there's going to be different standards for evidence. There's going to be different kinds of evidence because the things that make themselves present to us or that disclose themselves to us are all going to disclose themselves to us in different ways or in different modes. And the modes in which these things are, the very general modes in which things are disclosed to us is going to be one of the fundamental uh, takeaways from division one of being in time, right? So we'll get into that. So stay tuned. And then the thing I think I know the least about is the original sense of the a priori, right? That was a section that you were reading probably today. Uh, is that right, Nick? Yeah, just uh, an hour and a half ago. Again, I can't help but think about it in Kantian terms. Of course, Kant's entire project is launched from the platform of this question, what is the synthetic a priori and how is it possible? I mean, for me, it's hard to separate a priori as a concept from the categories because of a kind of Kantian background, definitely not an expert, but some, um, you know, rooting in, in these ideas, but original sense of the a priori here. I mean, as it says here, it's in, indifferent to subjectivity. So I imagine it, with phenomenology, this unconcealment of what structures the phenomenon that it would have to be something I hesitate to say like eternal, but which, yeah, as it says here, is indifferent to subjectivity. And I don't want to say like has a, a, a rational structure, but reveals how different components of an object are, are held together. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's exactly true, but when I was thinking about what you said earlier about the way science proceeds and the aggregating of different, you know, in quotes, facts about a state of affairs. It's only like retrospectively that that sort of ordering principle is generated, but we act like, oh, well, it was there the entire time. I guess getting to the a priori would be going against the grain of that. And to get back to the things themselves would be to get back to the inherent structuration of those things. But I think where he wants to part ways with Kant is by not doing that in um, the context of a, a subject who puts that on to the material of reality without the subject. Right. Therefore, and then get we get beyond the kind of Cartesian duality 
that he's very critical of. Right. So I don't really understand what the universal scope means. Because like to either, we're talking – so for Khan, <clears throat> a priori forms of knowledge don't require going out and uh, seeing things empirically. They, they can be deduced um, from the mind itself, right? Which makes you think, well, then it must be subjective. Like there are subjective forms of knowledge um, that we can deduce from the a priori. And mathematics is said to be one of them. Um, we can, we, you, you can do that without going out and actually um, looking at rocks and trees and animals. Um, it's just something that you can do in the mind, right? Um, what does it mean to talk about the universal scope? Being in, I, get, I get indifferent to subjectivity um, because the point is, is that this is not purely subjective, that the a priori in its original sense as discovered by Husserl um, is indifferent to subjectivity. But what does it mean to say it has this universal scope? I don't really – I think that that's supposed to really mean something. And um, Well, we could – maybe we could relate it back to time. I mean we're talking about – he differentiates a, the a priori from the a posteriori. Right. And he mentioned something about time and the sequential here. So – I'm I'm really going out on a limb here because I'm not confident about what I'm saying, but I'll just spitball and think that maybe he wants to talk about priority here coming before, but not not in the sequential way that scientists are dealing with a, the kind of linear time that you were talking about right. before. So then th- that would imply a kind of universality but i think we need to understand what heidegger means by time to really understand the universal scope of the a priori yeah i think so also that's perfect that you brought time into it because from section seven of this chapter the original sense of the a priori in the first paragraph where he goes over the three major discoveries that come with uh, the Husserlian sense of the a priori. Um, he says he, it all culminates in uh, the clarification of its sense, the sense of the a priori, really presupposes the understanding of what we are seeking, time in italics. So that is fundamental here to what he's doing. Um I'll just leave it at that for now. The original sense of the a priori is something that, like I said, I would like to do a whole lecture on this chapter, and I would want to spend a lot of time on this one. But for now, we're going to kind of keep moving. Just keep in mind, this is not necessary to read for yourself in preparation for reading Being in Time. This is just kind of like useful background knowledge so that you can kind of get a grasp of like what Heidegger's thinking going in on the project of being in time, right? So he, so Heidegger thinks that the possibility of doing philosophy at all in any serious sense has been secured by these discoveries, specifically these three major discoveries of phenomenology. These have made it possible to do philosophy in what he calls a scientific sense, right? There's this division between philosophy as worldview and philosophy as scientific philosophy. And this is 
philosophy, you know, science understood as Wissenschaft, rigorous, systematic research, right? So rigorous and systematic philosophy as opposed to just worldview philosophy or ideology. Obviously, he wants to be doing this rigorous, systematic, scientific kind of philosophy. And so he's saying that the possibility of doing it at all has been made, uh, has been secured here by Husserl with these three discoveries. Um, I feel like when I come back around to this in a, in a year or two, after a lot more serious, rigorous engagement with Kant and Husserl and others, um, I'm going to be able to say a lot more about why these three are the, the sort of like why they really do set set us up to do philosophy. But I'll just say that for the time being, uh, what seems obvious at least is that all of philosophy uh, at the time that he's doing this is basically neo-Kantian, operating within these rigid dualisms um, and. Philosophy, as he says, had become traditionalistic, which is very problematic when all philosophy and science at the time is in crisis and trying to refound its foundations. And uh, he's like, no, if we want to be revolutionary, if we want to be truly radical, um, we can't just be little reformists working in this niche area of philosophy or this niche area of science. We actually have to get back to the basics. And these have to be pre Kantian and pre-Cartesian basics. He says that people think that what he's do- that phenomenology is doing is is something that's like it's just Catholic philosophy. This is not something that he says here. He says it elsewhere, um, and he says this is bullshit. You know, especially since he's not a Catholic anymore at the at the time that he's really doing this in the twenties. But he says the reason people accuse him of just being a Catholic philosopher is because he takes Anselm and Augustine and Thomas Aquinas seriously, and he thinks that they actually have something to offer. But why he thinks that they actually have something to offer is important, because it's the same reason that he thinks that the ancient Greeks have something serious to offer. And that is, pre-Descartes, philosophers didn't think about the human and its mind in this individualizing, subjective way that has decontextualized it and removed it from the world, removed it from its body, removed it from everything, right? This sort of compartmentalization only comes about with Descartes and everyone after him. And so Heidegger thinks there's a profound importance lost on all of the philosophers that follow from from Descartes, um, and it's because it's not lost on the medievals, and because it's not uh, lost on the classical uh, Greek philosophers, we therefore have something that we can learn from them. Um, that doesn't mean that we're just going to be traditionalistic in how we go about reading them, though. So Heidegger's never going to just copy paste their ideas, but he does think that they they see something about being a human that seems to have been lost. Right, Husserl lays the basis for being able to build on uh, experience itself in a way that's going to have a more full conception of the human like philosophers did before Descartes. So this is the quote that honestly should have been like – honestly, I'm going I'm I'm to drag it up to an earlier part of the lecture so that if I ever give this lecture again, I'll be able to uh, read this off before – 
talking about intentionality and its categories and all of that stuff. But this is the quote. I'm just going to read it. Every lived experience, every psychic comportment directs itself towards something. Representing is representing of something. Recalling is a recalling of something. Judging is judging about something. Presuming, expecting, hoping, loving, hating of something. But, one will object, this is a triviality, a triviality, hardly in need of explicit emphasis, certainly no special achievement meriting the designation of discovery. Notwithstanding, let us pursue this triviality a bit and bring out what it means phenomenologically. So, I think over the course of the last like 40 minutes, we've been talking about just that, uh, pursuing this triviality and bringing out what it means. Um, the implications of this discovery. It's definitely nothing trivial considering the fact that it poses a serious problem for all previous philosophy. So let's, uh, so that's the quote. Now we're going to get back to, uh, really, I want, I want to kind of close this thing out in the next half hour talking about what Heidegger thinks is missed by Husserl and specifically how he takes intentionality in a new direction that we're all going to become very familiar with as soon as we get into the first chapters of Being in Time. It's this key word, comportment, right? So Husserl, by focusing on intentionality as revealed through perception, really keeps things locked into this this dualism between mind and matter, between self and world, between subject and objects. Uh, and it, it is because of this emphasis on perception. The word comportment is going to be used a lot by Heidegger um, in this work as well as in Being in Time. But really, what does it mean? It means how one goes about doing things, right? He takes the basic structure of intentionality, but removes it from this purely cognitive thing and puts it into our lived experience with this word comportment, right? It's not that we're just having intentional experiences in this mental sense, but it is that we are having uh, experiences that are always directed towards the, towards things and stuff, Um at the level of lived experience. So here's the quote. When it comes to comportments, we must keep a steady eye solely upon the structure of directing itself toward in them. All theories about psychic consciousness, person, and the like must be held in abeyance. Meaning we have to bracket off all the theories that we have up until now that have been, uh, that have lost touch with the fact that we're always directing our, ourselves towards things, right? This triviality that he had talked about. But it's going to be an expanded notion of intentionality that's no longer purely cognitive or perceptual, but is more in the world, okay? So the thing I want to say about preparation is that the entire book, Being in Time, Though it's like the thing that he's most well known for, um, it's not actually this rigorous thinking of what is being, right? It's not this rigorous thinking of like what is, 
what is the question of being and like how have we lost touch with the question of being and what is being that Heidegger is known for. Being in time is merely the preparation to ask that question. Heidegger thinks it's the most important question. What is being? But he thinks that we cannot even pose the question without first thinking properly who's asking the question and what is the sense of the question being asked. So not just what is being. Being in time is about what is the sense of being. Okay? What is the sense of the question about being? Right? For, for humans, we, we want to know what is real. We want to know how to know what is real. And so traditional metaphysics and, and, and epistemology are obviously always going to be relevant. But at a deeper level, we're the kind of being who asks the question. And when we ask the question, there's probably an original sense to the question. And that original sense to the question is something that can definitely get lost when everyone's doing philosophy in a traditionalistic way. So... I guess my main point, and I, don't, I think you heard it probably because you have earbuds in there, Nick, when you stepped away, did you hear? The, my, the main point here is that being in time is not the book that is saying, well, what is being? It is the book that is saying, who's asking the question in the first place? And what is the sense of that question? So really, being in time is this giant project that he undertakes saying, well, we want to get to what is being, but we can't do that without laying the groundwork, without proper preparation. Can yeah. You, you, okay, so you did get that. Okay. Are you able to read yeah, do you think, Yeah. You, you want me to read the uh, the quote? Yeah, but you got something. Go for it. No, I was just going to say it's like he's not – it seems to me that he's not building towards a final definition of the identity of being so much as I, what gets – lost on many readers is that like you said design is the being that inquires about its own being that can be quite confusing but it's like always bringing it back to lacan but what the subject is for lacan it's like design is for heidegger and just like with lacan it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the subject is the impossibility of the subject of the subject ever catching up with itself and therefore kind of generating the very movement that creates symptoms that the, that the ego tries to cope with. Uh, it seems like design is something kind of similar and, and very hard to grasp in that, yes, we don't have the sort of metaphysics of presence idea of being to rely on here. We have to completely change our entire mind state here and and think about being as the being that questions its own being exactly well i say exactly but i i'm also i think i got a little bit lost there because i was like you're kind of taking it into the psychoanalytic territory and talking about symptoms and stuff like that and so it's like to just to kind of break the point though yeah i didn't want to take us to a, a field of uh what we're talking about it was just a reference point for me right but i don't want to um yet yeah, distract from the the main thread here right and so i guess the main thread here is just that this idea of rigorous preparation is when i really want to drive home because all being in time is is a work of preparation 
for even asking the question of what is being. And that's counterintuitive because going off of everything we said so far, shouldn't we be able to just, you know, oh, we're not going to be traditionalistic anymore. We don't have to draw from philosophers anymore. Let's just look at the things and deduce categories from them. So what's the problem? Could you read this quote? Sure. Uh, We must free ourselves from the prejudice that because phenomenology calls upon us to apprehend the matters themselves, these matters must be apprehended all at once without any preparation. Rather, the movement toward the matters themselves is a long and involved process which before anything else, has to remove the prejudices which obscure them. Yes. And so the prejudices which obscure them is kind of the key here, which is to say Husserl and Heidegger are strongly aware that there's no such thing as a pure perception, that perception as we have it in average everyday experience is theoretically laden, meaning that like, Concepts that we pick up from culture and assumptions about the way things work filter our experience. And therefore, what we think is a pure perception is always already an interpretation, right? So you take any, any, anybody, take a random person uh, who's working at the pizza shop, um, never studied philosophy, isn't even interested in it. They still think that there's a mind and that there's a world and that there's like a fundamental question mark over the diff over what the mind can actually know about the world and they will still talk about well this is an objective fact and that thing that you're talking about is purely subjective right facts don't care about your feelings right like these well what does that mean that presupposes a bunch of epistemological dogma right and so because we're trying to get back to basics, we want to find a way of removing the prejudices that obscure apprehension of the things in the first place. The other key to this quote was apprehended all at once. It's impossible to apprehend all of anything at once, right? I'm going to hold up my water bottle. It's, it's kind of not really showing in the camera very well because... It keeps being removed. Point being is you only see it from one side. Actually, just use me if you're looking at the video right now. Um, a lot of people are just listening to this. But you, if, you, if you're watching the video, then you see my face. You do not see the back of my head. But you deduce that I have a back of the head. Like when you look at when you look at my face, you don't you don't when you look at my face, you don't freak out and go, oh, my God. Is there a back of the head on that thing? Like, you just presume that there's a back of my head. And then if you actually get a chance to look at the back of my head, then you have that fulfillment, right, that we were talking about earlier. So there's the presumption followed by the fulfillment. We only ever perceive aspects and sides of things from specific standpoints. We can move those standpoints around, and that gives us what's called a variety of adumbrations. An adumbration is just a taking up of a standpoint, seeing something from an angle. And the idea is, 
not only do we have to uh, rigorously prepare ourselves to have an apprehension of a thing, but also to have multiple apprehensions of a thing so as to have a more fully fleshed out notion of it, right? So that's a lot of work. And actually most of what Husserl and Heidegger do that you can read them doing is just preparation. Like most of what they spend so much time preparing themselves to actually get around to doing what they're, what they're, what they're, what they want to do. But that's actually what we appreciate them for the most. Being in time is his most influential work, even though all it is, is laying the groundwork, but it's such a rigorous laying of the groundwork that it becomes the springboard for a thousand other, uh, philosophical projects. Right. Oh, I lost, I lost Nick. He'll probably be back here in a minute. So I'll just actually keep going because this is all stuff that Nick's quite familiar with because he just read these chapters. Basically, Heidegger defends Husserl from unfair attacks, um, such as, well, people experience hallucinations, so intentionality is not always something, is not really always of something, right? The point being like, you know, Husserl comes along and says, well, understanding is always understanding of something. Reflection is always reflection of something. Perception is always perception of something. And then someone like Rickert says, uh, actually, uh, it's not always of something because it might be of a hallucination and a hallucination is not a thing. No, it is still a thing. It's, it's a thing called a hallucination. So, that doesn't debunk intentionality. Intentionality as in the fact that we're always directed towards things and that any conception we have of things is always directed and situated. That's not been debunked. It just means, yeah, sometimes there's a hallucination there. Heidegger uses ex- examples like, so you might you might see something and think that it's one thing and then you get closer and you find out, oh, it's actually something else. All that shows you is that you had a mistaken impression, but there was still something there, right? Like in the, you know, you see, you, you, you thought you saw a person in the corner of the room. Turns out it was actually just a coat and hat on a rack, right? It's like probably everybody's had that experience of thinking that, oh, there's a person there. And then you're like, oh, it's actually a coat hanging on a, on a hanger with a hat over it. Okay. It doesn't mean that there wasn't something there. It just means you had a mistaken impression of the thing. Okay. So we can also simulate objects, right? Like uh, I was talking about, you know, in this in this situation, you see me talking. You d- you just kind of presume that I have a back of the head, even though you haven't seen the back of my head. But also, I could be some very expensive robot that doesn't actually have a back of the head, right? Your presumption could be wrong. Right, meaning that the fulfillment could actually show you otherwise than what you had presumed, right? But that doesn't change the fact that it's still an intentional experience. I have a very long quote, and I think I'm going to read it here, but I'm just double checking to see if Nick will be back. Um, he might have just lost internet, it's quite possible. Oh shit, yeah, his computer froze and he's restarting it. No worries. So, things themselves, not reflections, is the quote that I want to read. In opposition to the scientific account, what we want is precisely 
naivete, naivety, pure naivete, naivete. God, I always mess that word up. But this is basically the goal, following from the idea that it takes rigorous preparation to do phenomenology. The point is that we want to have a naive experience when we are apprehending things themselves and trying to deduce categories from them, right? So we want pure naivete, which in the first instance and in actuality sees the chair, right? You're seeing the chair in its facticity, right? He's using the chair as an example because he's been using examples like the bridge, the writing desk, the chair, etc. When we say we see, seeing here is not understood in the narrow sense of optical sensing. Here it means nothing other than simple cognizance of what is found, right? So if you are blind and you're feeling up the chair with your hands, you're still seeing in the sense that we're using it here. When we hold, when we hold to this expression, when we also understand and have no difficulty in taking the immediately given just as it shows itself. No, he says, then we also understand and have no difficulty in taking the immediately given just as it shows itself, right? We thus say that one sees in the chair itself that it came from a factory. We draw no conclusions, make no investigations, but we simply see this in it, even though we have no sensation of a factory or anything like it. The field of what is found in simple cognizance is in principle much broader than what any particular epistemology or psychology could establish on the basis of a theory of perception. In this broad sense of perceiving and seeing, what is perceived even includes, as we shall see later, all of what I have said about thingness, that this thing itself includes materiality, that to materiality belongs extension as well as coloration, which in turn has its own kind of general, it has its own kind of extension. These are not matters that I discover here in this classroom. They are correlations between general features. But they are not invented or constructed. I can also see these structures and their specific correlations in an adequately and sufficiently cultivated form of simple finding seeing, not in the sense of a mystical act or inspiration, but in the sense of a simple envisaging of structures which can be read off in what is given. Nick's back. Let's see if I can get him in here. Welcome back. Connecting audio. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back. All right. I'm back on my phone this time. Um, something's wrong with my computer, but what did I miss? Nance. Nance just said, so Dasman. And my question, Nance, is uh, what what thing that I just said was so Dasman following from? Like what, what in reference to, to what exactly? So... I'll come back to that once you've responded, Nance. But basically, all you missed, Nick. Oh, look, it's your computer. Oh, so wait, are you joining from your phone? You're muted. Yeah, I'm on my phone now because uh, my computer is not properly charging, and that's why I think everything froze up. So, yeah. Okay. I, we can see your microphone and your computer, by the way. I don't know if you know that. Wait. Okay. How about now? Now we see you. All right. Now we see your beautiful face. Uh-huh. So, so I'm trying to wrap it up here in the next few minutes. I'm not going to reread the giant quote that I just read out, but basically the 
takeaway from it is it's just a, a this quote was an elaboration on the experience um, or, or, or sorry on the goal of actually reading out the general structures of things um, based on what is given, right? Which, as we've already said, requires rigorous preparation. So Nance said that he asked about Dasman because uh, in reference to the idea of hallucinations, because I was talking about how uh, Ricker tries to argue against Heidegger, uh, or sorry, Husserl, by saying, well, intentionality is not always consciousness of something because sometimes that thing is just a hallucination. And so it's not always something, sometimes it's just a hallucination. And the, the point is, is like, yeah, but even that's of something. Or if you mistake the coat rack for an actual person, you realize quickly, oh, there's, a, there's actually – it's just a coat rack. But that's that doesn't deep disprove intentionality. Right? It just speaks to the fact that we can be mistaken and that sometimes our presumptions are wrong. Right? Sometimes the fulfillment shows that the presumption was actually way off, way, 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 way off. It's way off in the case where the coat rack is a coat rack and not a person like you first thought it was. But tying that into Dasman, um, basically, I, th- I think that what you're asking there is like, so in being in time, we'll find out about Dasman, which is the term he gives for the public. Um, sort of, uh, you know, Dasein in the public, it's always falling because there's this constant uh, downward motion of three forces that work together to kind of help us lose touch with the things themselves. And that is idle chatter, ambiguity, and superficial, detached, non-committal curiosity. And so superficial, detached, non-committal curiosity combines with uh, chit-chat in a very ambiguous way. And so we, so yeah, that uh, that's kind of to say that there's these are hallucinations, we could also go back to talking about empty intending, right? When you're when you're in the when you're in the discourse as we as we talk about it today with Twitter or, or or Instagram or whatever everybody's talking about, you can tell me what everybody's talking about without actually having any firsthand experience of the subject matter that everyone's talking about. And you can do so in a very skillful way. Because you can tell me about who's saying what and what the general tendencies of the discourse are. You can actually lay out the field for me and say, well, leftists say this about this thing and liberals say this about this thing and conservatives say this about this thing and X, Y, and Z other people who don't belong to these categories also have this to say about this thing. Okay, but tell me about the thing itself outside of hearsay. Can you actually just tell me about the thing itself? Chances are you can't. Because when you're in this mode of superficial and detached curiosity that is not committed to getting to know the subject matter and everybody's already talking about things in this sort of ambiguous way, yeah, you're not going to have this based apprehension of the subject matter. Okay, And I use based in its double sense, both in internet slang as the opposite of cringe um, and also in the sense of being based in the things themselves, right? So that's Husserl and Heidegger were trying to get based before it was cool. So yeah, I think Dossmann kind of does factor in there in the sense that um, empty intending and mistaken impressions, um, it's really all we have 
until we actually get to know things for ourselves, right? People tell you about what love is like, but you actually have to be in love to get a sense for what love is like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we already went over most of this. I'm just going to say adumbration, once again, is the taking up of standpoints and getting um, uh, getting a read on a thing from a specific standpoint, okay? So we don't intend aspects alone, but always thing totalities. We always have a, th- a sense for thing, in, uh, for thing totalities. That sense can be wrong, but when you see my face, you are seeing the thing totality that is me from that standpoint, even though it's just an aspect and you're able to get more uh, takes over time, right? But there is a thing totality there. We always infer it. We never just take a side of a thing for itself in real life, right? You see a side of the table, you deduce that there's a, the rest of the table is there. And then later you might realize the rest of the table wasn't how you had envisaged it, but you envisioned it nonetheless, right? So this is going to be crucial for Heidegger's conception of truth, which comes later. But it's just kind of the, the point is, is that truth is disclosure itself. And that as we experience disclosure, it's always taking up a standpoint, meaning a perspective. Uh, and, and so when you say that something is true, but it's not the whole truth, Heidegger would say it's correct, but not truth itself. Correctness is going to have to do with a standpoint that you take up and a judgment of whether something is true or false is going to tell you whether it's correct or incorrect, but that's operating within the more fuller picture of truth. Truth would be all of the adumbrations added up in their disclosure, disclosure itself being truth. So now I told you I'm going to give you a spoiler on chapter three. This is just kind of like the broad brush, quick and dirty. But basically, Husserl doesn't go far enough. So Brentano focused on the intentional aspect of consciousness. Husserl develops both the intentio and the intendum as totality. The intentio being the consciousness that is intending and the intendum being the objects that are being intended. Now, Husserl develops these both in their totality, meaning that Brentano was kind of split between thinking that the intended objects are just within the mind or thinking, nope, it's direct access to the things themselves. Brentano was split on this and he never got a rigorous theory going. Husserl develops this idea that they're they're never separable and we can definitely develop structures out of their interplay. But Husserl doesn't think the being of this totality in any rigorous sense. What is the being of both intentio and intendum? Well, Heidegger thinks that no philosopher has ever really posed the question of what being is in a rigorous way. That's actually how he rolls out the beginning of being in time is by saying he completely lost touch with this question, what is being? In fact, it's not even been posed correctly by any philosophers. So that's a huge claim, and he doesn't want to fall into the same trap, which is why he wants to do the adequate preparation to even ask the question of being, which is the entire project of being in time. It's just the groundwork for being able to ask that question by first saying, what's the kind of being that asks the question, and what is the sense of the question itself? 
that is actually the most powerful thing to think about. Maybe it's not the most, but but honestly, if you take anything from this lecture, I think the most powerful thing to take from this lecture is not just all the other stuff that we've talked about, but just when, when anyone asks a question or whenever you're having some profound question, think back a step to what is the sense of the question itself. That meta step is one of the most productive and powerful things that you can do. So between beyond between and beyond Husserl and Dilthey, Heidegger uses the groundwork laid out by these thinkers to then overcome the traditionalist baggage that they both presuppose. So everyone else has failed to ask the question of being. We have to prepare ourselves to ask the question of being. But what does that mean? It means we have to ask what is the meaning of the question itself. We have to ask what is its sense and why do we even ask the question? But obviously, the biggest question is, who asks the question? Obviously, the answer is Dasein. Everybody knows that by now when it comes to being in time. Um, and really, chapter one is going to show you why, why it is Dasein. Comportment and care are going to be how he takes the project of Husserl into this more fully, fully fleshed out conception of what it is to be a person in the world, in history, etc. And that's comportment and care. So... Intentionality, oh, and every experience is always an experience of something, right? Well, beyond that cognitive fact is that we're there, we're there in the world and that we have uh, definite uh, motives and a sort of enmeshment in broader totalities than what we're able to deal with in this purely cognitive way. And part of the, th the whole thing about being directed, we're, we're con it's not just that we have these intentional experiences in this purely cognitive way to where we can say that any experience of anything is always uh, directed. But why is it directed? It's directed because at its most essential level, Dasein always gives a fuck. The technical term for always giving a fuck is care. Dasein always cares. Okay, This is going to be really important for the entire unfolding of being in time. And there's all kinds of things that would come out of that. And I'm just going to read them off. Unlike all other kinds of beings we encounter, we can either win ourselves or lose ourselves. Right? Suicide is proof that we can lose ourselves. Right? What does that mean? Animals don't just kill themselves. Right? If they have their needs met, then they're, they're fulfilled. But we can have our needs met and then say, this is not enough and then take our own life. That tells us something very important about us as opposed to other kinds of creatures. More importantly, we're the kind of creature who, not just having our needs met, might take our life because there's something more important, right? This is not just suicide, but it could be a political act or it could be enlistment in a war. The point is, animals don't do that, right? They don't make, they don't, they don't dedicate themselves to abstract causes, right? This is a very important point of departure because it can't be left out of trying to figure out what kind of being we are because we're that kind of being that will rupture from the chain of natural occurrences to such an extreme that we take our own life or we commit to a cause where we might lose it, right? So putting that first foremost is something he's going to do in chapter one, though he doesn't use the, the examples that I just shared. 
right? But when he says the Dasein is the kind of being that can either win itself or lose itself, this is what's implicated here. So we ask the question of being, but we do so with a motive driving our interest. We got to understand what the motive is that's driving our interest in the question in the first place. Everything we think we know about being is based in knowledge of beings that are not like us because they don't ask the question. So when we talk about being itself in some abstract sense, we tend to deduce our ideas about being based off of things that we've seen when apprehending beings. But being is not the same thing as beings. And there's different kinds of beings. We're a different kind of being than rocks and trees and animals, right? This idea that we cannot deduce true fact, you know, we cannot deduce the truth of being itself from observations of other kinds of beings is really important. And I think when it comes to the idea of nihilism, the most important point here is that we cannot just take observations of other kinds of beings that aren't being itself, much less the kinds of beings that we are, and then have our takeaways about those kinds of beings be ones where our conclusion about the about being itself or about the kinds of beings that we are is just derivative from these other kinds of beings. And I know I'm falling into this trap of just saying being way too much, but does it make sense to you, Nick? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, we when we when we approach things in the scientific point from the scientific point of view, it's like we want to extrapolate from what we see around us, and then what science does is foreclose that very dimension of well, what does it mean to be a being that asks these questions, discounts that as an unimportant matter or a nothing. Mm-hmm. But it's like I, what Heidegger seems to be saying here is, no, this is the central question. And yes, it's extremely thorny and confusing and labyrinthine, but the idea of glossing it over or just scoffing at it would mean um, complete dismissal of what is at the core of the human condition itself. Mm. And that we have to proceed extremely carefully if we're going to take this question seriously and get back to the origins of something that science is obviously, and history too, mm-hmm. to a great degree, both fields must necessarily foreclose that's a problem right and not not just as it foreclosed them but history gives us this idea that history is set a set of facts about the past and what we forget about that is that we are beings who are historical we live in history we the history as a scientific field is something that we do because we are historical we live and breathe history we make history Right? We have a place in history. We have a role in history. And so part of what is being combated here is the idea that history is just this thing over there. When actually history is the reason that we can say that we can win or lose ourselves. Right? There's a lot of dangerous sort of aspects to this idea of history 
that lend, lends itself to totalitarianism. Um, and there's a lot, I mean, really, I would love to do an entire course on that topic someday uh, once I've myself been adequate, adequately prepared. But for now, just we'll leave it at, um, it's a thorny, complex set of issues, but there is something to it. There's a fundamental something to this, which is that, um, yeah, history is not just something we study. It's not just, you know, learning the past so that we can not make the mistakes of the past here in the future. Like, that's what people tend to say. Yeah, well, it is that, but it's a lot more than that. And more importantly, historicity, beyond the field of history, historicity speaks to the fact that we're historical creatures, right? That we've lost ourselves if we lose our sense of being historical creatures. If we just become pure worker consumers and we forget about history and, and, our, and, our, and the fact that we have a role to play in it, that the world is a stage and that we've got a role. If we forget that, then we become all nihilistic and think, oh, there's no real meaning to anything beyond the shirt that I buy, beyond the whatever that I do, right? No, no, we've, it's, it's much, much broader than that, uh, much more rich and, uh, and the idea of purpose and meaning is itself something that cannot be removed from history. And history itself is something that occurs on the horizon of time. Just like natural science, it occurs on the horizon of time. And so to get an originary sense of time and what it means to be, that is the goal of being in time. So being in the world is the concept that he doesn't want to call a concept because it's not something cognitive. It's something that's supposed to break out of subject-object dualism. And concepts are all mental. And being in the world is supposed to not be a purely mental phenomenon. It's supposed to be something that we are able to confirm. He's going to help us presume all these aspects of it. And then just going about our lives, we will get the fulfillment of this idea being in the world or this phenomenon being in the world. And Chapter one is him just saying, chapter one of being in time is really just him saying, we need to understand being in the world if we want to understand Dasein, and here's the reasons why, but we can't understand being in the world all at once. Remember that whole idea, we can't understand something all at once? You got to take up specific standpoints to it. Well, because being in the world is such a complicated idea and we don't want to just have a flattened one-dimensional take on it, it's actually going to require the next three chapters to fully get this thing being in the world figured out. And so the key sort of things I'm just going to say as a sort of primer for approaching chapter one are, one, we are always already in the world. Two, we do not just have intentional relations to objects, but comport ourselves in the world. Three, to any given intentional object, there is its circumspective background conditions. I'll get more into that in a second. And four, so we have to think worldhood, right? Context, environment, being with. Now, he's going to separate worldhood from environment because he's going to talk about environment in the way that people tend to talk about it. But when people tell you, well, it's situationally dependent, oh, it's contextual, oh, environment plays a big role, all of those phrases, all of that is kind of getting at something that we want to flesh out with being in the world and this idea of worldhood. Circumspective background conditions, okay, is to say that, yeah, intentionally, at that level of intentionality, we are able to focus on one thing at a time. 
But being able to focus on any one thing at a time presupposes all the background stuff that makes it so that we're able to focus on that thing in the first place, right? So thinking about the background that grounds whatever gets taken in the foreground is a very tricky business, but it is what we're trying to get at in understanding worldhood. And because it's so tricky, we're going to have to spend chapters two, three, and four of being in time flushing out the phenomenon of being in the world, which is holistic, not just an aspect of something, but is honestly the most intimate and familiar thing that you'll ever read in, in terribly difficult prose. Meaning that this is part of the reason that being in time is such a good bridge into higher reading comprehension levels. Because, yeah, you're getting thrown in the deep end reading something that's terribly difficult, but the phenomena being dealt with are all intuitively given, meaning that he's helping you show things, uh, show you things about stuff you're already encountering in your lived experience, right? Whereas, I don't know, if you're reading Deleuze, it can be pretty hard to bring it back to actual experience, right? And so, yeah, that's one of the reasons this is so nice is because even though it's so difficult, when it clicks, part of the reason that it clicks so well is because it it, it gets confirmed by things that you're actually seeing. Last slide. Being time chapter one is going to focus on being, being in, and the world. It's going to focus on unpacking why these all these component parts of being in the world have to be treated separately. I already talked about background conditions. Um, so honestly, I already talked about all of this stuff. So that's a nice thing about slides. You realize, shit, I didn't even need them. I already said it all. But I guess the last thing is that the Being in Time Research cohort begins June 3rd. So it's coming up here really soon. There are people who have been getting a lot out of these pre-course lectures who are not in the they're not enrolled in this course. And I just wanted to let you all know that you're definitely welcome to join the research cohort. It is one that is being kept small and I've changed the approach. I already talked about it at the beginning of the course why I've changed the approach. Just to summarize, I'm building on-demand content so that to some degree, the learning process can be automated and then you'll be able to binge through stuff and then be caught up to speed and join the discourse through the forums and then link up with people who've also done the readings to do revisitings of various sections of the text that you're interested in. Uh, and that, that, that'll be the general rule across all of these course-gated communities. But for being in time specifically, I've not built the on-demand content yet. That's something that is being done from June 3rd through October, but we're taking one month off. So we're doing Division 1 starting June 3rd, ending July 22nd, and Division 2 will begin August 19th and go through October. The reason we're taking a month off is because I'm getting married. Um... But also, it's good to have a break when you're, because this is going to require pretty intensive reading every day, right? You're gonna you're gonna want to set up some kind of a reading regimen where you're kind of going at it every day, because if you put this off uh, until like a couple days before the lecture, you're not going to be able to pull it off. You're really not going to be able to. 
Um, some of the chapters are pretty short, like the first two chapters, but then you start getting into these bigger chapters and they're going to break your spine. You're going to, you will be destroyed if you try to do it all last minute. If you try to read 40 pages of being in time in one sitting, you're going to want to off yourself. Don't do it. I just don't really, you're going to want to take this like, I don't know, four to six pages per day. I I do not recommend doing 20 to 40 pages in a sitting. If you really want to get overwhelmed and feel like just like you don't even know anything and, and just you really like, like how I feel like stupid. If you just want to sit there and go, yeah, go for three hours. Um, and just read the whole time. It's not worthless to do it that way, but giving it, giving it to yourself in smaller doses is what I'm recommending. Okay. And so because that's going to be every day, I'm assuming we want to take a month off. So division one and two, what we're going to be doing. I was selling these access to uh, divisions one and two separately, but because of the changed, because I've changed everything about the approach to this course, um, whatever tier you purchase it at gives you access to both as well as if you join for this research cohort, which is going to be small and intimate. If you actually do, if you're a part of that, then you will also have access to the on-demand version of it later, right? That's You're kind of helping me build it. Nick, thank you so much for being here and for helping me build it. Yeah, for sure. My pleasure. That's basically it. So we'll have hopefully time to do one more pre-course lecture. It'll be coming up within a week probably. I mean, week and a half tops. But basically... In the same way that I assumed you didn't do the reading for everything covered here, I want to do a lecture on the introduction to being in time itself, which is a monstrous section of the text. I got one of the people who is in this course reached out to me directly and said, hey, I really hope that you're going to do a lecture on the introduction to being in time, on the actual introduction. And I said, you're in luck. I am going to do one. But it's not going to be one of these lectures where I squeeze out every little movement of the introduction, and it's not going to be one where I assume that you did the reading. And the reason for that is I am discouraging people from reading the introduction to being in time until after you've read the chapters. Read the actual chapters before you read the introduction. Okay, Hubert Dreyfus is the most famous Heideggerian, the most responsible person for showing us all the importance of Heidegger and his influence over continental philosophy. He taught at UC Berkeley for his entire life. Basically, every year he taught being in time anew, afresh with a cohort of students. And the entire time he was having arguments with John Searle and other analytic philosophers, and he was using Heidegger to do so. Um there's a variety of issues with that because he was basically a pragmatist and he actually shared a lot of assumptions with those analytic philosophers and he sort of domesticates Heidegger in a way that makes his politics completely irrelevant, which is why up until like over the last couple of years, I really did think that there was a nice clean separation between the politically naive uh, Heidegger who got, got swept along with the, the moment and his, you know, fundamental ontology and existentialism. In fact, 
They're a lot less easy to separate. And uh, part of the reason that we know that now is because of stuff that's become available since then in terms of unpublished manuscripts that maybe people like Dreyfus didn't have access to. But also because for someone who's not, who's not a communist, who's never been a communist, who's never identified with the left in uppercase L sense, um, it's pretty easy to domesticate Nietzsche and Heidegger. But once you realize that they're profoundly in every bone of their body anti-communist, like literally, ant, like they are anti-communist. Like they might not be, like Nietzsche might not be a Nazi, but he is anti-communist. I, I got to go. I got to go to bed. Oh, you got to run? I will be present for the next lecture. So I'm out of here. All right, man. Cool. Have a good night. Good night. Let's see if I'll hold on here. Let me do something here, folks. Turn it this way. There we go. Okay. So the distinction between, oh, fundamental ontology on the one side and politics on the other is one that people like Dreyfus make. It's not something that uh, we need to focus on right now, but kind of have it in the back of your head that it is something that in this course we will get a lot more into later. And uh, for now, just keep in mind, you don't have to read the introduction, um, but if you do, try to do it in the next week and a half because the lecture about the introduction will be in the next week and a half. But if you have to make a decision between reading the introduction or reading chapter one, just read chapter one and we'll get to it. We'll move through the chapters. That's it. Really. That's the end. So... Thank you, everybody, for joining. I'm about to roll the PSA about the upcoming courses. The What is Sex course, which is mentioned in the PSA, is already ongoing, but is available on demand, and you can still, there is still time to sign up for that course. The Critical Media Theory course is coming up. Um, it says that it was going to kick off in May, but we actually kicked it, we, we postponed it to begin in June. And so that's a course that you can definitely still take. Um, and then being in time, obviously, is coming up on June 3rd. And so I uh, hope to see a couple more people sign up for it. But if not, don't worry. Really, this is like a smaller, more intimate research cohort. And the real deal as far as like the on-demand course is something that will get rolled out after this research cohort gets through being in time this summer. So thanks, everybody, for following this to the end. And uh, for everybody who watches this not in its live form, um, please like it, please uh, share it, please uh, give it a comment. And I know like, subscribe, comment is kind of just like the thing that we always say, but it's not just for the algorithm. I don't really care too much about the algorithm. I mean, to some degree, I can't stop caring even though I know it's stupid. But really, the reason that the algorithm matters is just so that other people who have similar viewing habits to you also get it recommended to them. And also, if you watch this, but then you don't like it, you don't comment on it, you don't share it, the chances are your algorithm's not going to prioritize this kind of content as much as other more superficial, distracting kinds of content, kinds of content that makes you forget that you actually have to get the encounter with the subject matter yourself, right? So do like, comment, subscribe, but also um, do that because it helps me get a sense for who is out there in the real world actually watching this stuff 
because what I'm ultimately trying to do is develop an intellectual milieu, which requires other people. And I'm trying to figure out who's a part of this conversation. And if it's you, then I'd like to know who you are. And with that, thanks, everybody. Take care. Enjoy. Peace. And now a quick message from our sponsors. Just kidding. This will be neither quick nor from any corporate or state sponsorship. What follows is a description of Theory Underground, a thank you to its patrons, information about the upcoming tour, and three brand new courses that you might want to enroll in. Stay for the whole thing to get promo codes to save on those courses or information about the financial aid scholarship. Theory Underground is a philosophy lecture course gated social media site and publishing house by and for working class intellectuals and renegade academics. The subject matters dealt with at Theory Underground are the most important yet neglected for understanding ourselves, the world, and ways of possibly changing it. Because we have no corporate or state sponsors, only a small band of patrons, everything in this first year of operation helps immensely. Special thank yous to Bert, Nance, Marilyn, Carl, and Adam for your help in the $50 per month patron tier. If you want to help but the $50 tier is too much, consider donating towards meals and gasoline via Venmo or PayPal. Gasoline is for our countrywide tour of the U.S., where we aim to meet with supporters of this effort and do events to draw in new people who do not necessarily belong to marketing demographics predetermined by the attention economy. We will be giving lectures, leading discussions, and promoting several brand new books. Our goal is to only go to towns and cities where we have personal invitations from at least one person. We are doing this underground style, which for the hardcore punk scene in the US meant coming for long enough to get to know the area and do multiple events, not this modern treadmill of a new city each night in an attempt to maximize fame and profit. If you are interested in being a host, guide, or volunteer, then please fill out the form at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground.com forward slash us hyphen tour hyphen 2023 in an attempt to utilize the resources made publicly available we will be using libraries for most of our events so if you have a local library card and can reserve a space for us we would most appreciate it alternatively some of you might have access to pretty epic venue spaces just let us know ahead of time now for the courses Three upcoming courses are What is Sex, Digital Literacy and CMT, Critical Media Theory, and Being and Time. All courses at Theory Underground are available after the fact on demand, but some people get a lot more out of doing it live with a cohort. If you are looking to think deeply about the devices we have become reliant on while experimenting with new ways of reclaiming your attention span and relationship with yourself and others, then check out Digital Literacy and Critical Media Theory course that is structured to combat the attention economy while strategically using some of its tools to help us gain a freer relationship to our devices. If interested, an introduction to this course will be shared at the end of this video. Just make sure to click on it. The lectures for this course take place on the second Sunday of every month for six months, starting in May. If you sign up at Tier 3, you also get access to the Recovery Group component, which also meets once per month. Enroll with promo code CMTEARLYBIRDYT before May 13th for 20% off. If you are frustrated by the discourse revolving around gender ideology, left and right, then join us in thinking deeper about sex. 
Cadell Last of Philosophy Portal is joining up with Theory Underground to teach Alenka Zupanchik's What is Sex? One of the most succinct and cutting-edge works of theory dealing with the topic. Zupanchik is one of the Slovenian circle's most incisive critics of both naive progressivism and reactionary tendencies when it comes to thinking about the relationship between sex, culture, and subjectivity. If interested, watch Three Reasons to Read What is Sex, which will be shared on screen at the end of this video. What is Sex begins in May and goes through June, meeting for four lecture sessions and, surprise, you will actually get to meet Alenka Zupanchik herself. Use promo code WHATISSEXEARLYBIRDYT before May 7th for 20% off. And just so you know, everybody, don't stress the capitalization. I just make it that way so it's more readable. It's not case sensitive. Being in time is one of the most notorious, profound, and difficult works of philosophy from the last 200 years. Its deconstruction of modernity and fundamental challenge to scientism is a prerequisite rite of passage for any thinker who wants to seriously engage with continental philosophy, social theory, or world change. In this course, you will learn about what Heidegger means by being, being in the world, Dasein, being unto death, and so many other crucial developments. But more important than all these buzzwords is just taking on this work itself and wrestling with the text. Doing so will rapidly accelerate your reading comprehension abilities and simultaneously challenge some of your most deep-seated presuppositions. As before, an introductory video to this course is shared on the end screen of this video or can be accessed from the links in the description. Being in Time Division 1 starts in June and ends July 22nd. Division 2 begins August 19th and goes through October. To sign up for Division 1 today, use the promo code BEINGINTIMEEARLYBIRDYT before the end of May for 20% off. If you feel obstructed by the cost of these courses, then we have good news. But before getting into the financial aid info, why are there even price tags at all? Much less tiered pricing. First, because some people just want to audit, whereas others want constructive critical feedback or even one-on-one -on -one sessions. Tiers exist so that you can get the value you are seeking while compensating me, Dave, fairly for the time and energy required. Second, the prices set for these courses aim to make Theory Underground sustainable, meaning that it will bring in enough to pay for the costs of the operation, including my personal bills since I want to be a co-earner in the household when my soon-to-be wife and I start a family. <laughs> Thirdly, <laughs> Thirdly, people tend to take the things they pay for more seriously, and we want you to get the most out of this experience. With those reasons aside, we do not seek to exclude anyone who is struggling just to get by. We have a financial aid scholarship option for people who are currently between jobs or who live in a country on a cheap currency, like many of you who watch from Thailand, India, Mexico, or Poland. To name a few of the residents of some of the people who have already received financial aid scholarships in the last couple of months. Because I know what trying to study theory under the stresses of housing insecurity and poverty is like, the scholarship was set up during the first month of operation. Simply fill it out at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground dot com forward slash scholarship. Last but not least, stay tuned for the Theory Underground app coming soon to an app store near you on your phone. Yeah, and seriously, thank you for listening or watching to this point and uh yeah thanks we look forward to taking these courses with you bye